This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, discussing the topic of uh, cervical cancer and radiation therapy with Dr. Anuja Jingren, who is a professor in the Department of Radiation Oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Welcome, Anuja. Thank you, Pedro. Um, Anuja, thank you for your time again, and I think obviously this is a, a very important and relevant topic, so not only in the United States, but obviously also to the global audience of the International Journal. And I was wondering if you can just start by uh, just providing us a, a brief description of some of the major changes with regards to the modalities and techniques of uh, radiotherapy for cervical cancer over the past decade. So yes, thank you, Pedro, for that question, because I think it's a very relevant question. We really have changed our technology for cervix cancer as well as endometrial cancer, but let's talk about cervix cancer. The biggest change in radiation oncology has been image-guided. So it's image-guided external beam as well as image-guided brachytherapy. And we'll talk about brachytherapy a little bit later, but let's talk about external beam first. So we're using image-guided external beam, which means either intensity modulated radiation therapy, IMRT, or VMAT. So they're basically exactly the same. So what we can do is we can actually target exactly the area we want to treat and spare the normal tissue, like the bowel, the sigmoid, the rectum, and the bladder. And we actually have both retrospective data, and now we actually have prospective data that shows that IMRT slash VMAT does reduce patient-reported um, toxicity. So there's actually a randomized trial, time C, that got published, and it looked at patient-reported outcomes, and they looked at acute toxicity. And what they found was IMRT slash VMAT reduces both bowel as well as bladder toxicity compared to 3D conformal. So IMRT, at least for acute toxicity, reduces the toxicity both for rectal and bladder. And Anuja, as a follow-up to that, uh, what would you say is your best estimate with regards to how many centers in the United States today use IMRT for cervical cancer? So I would say almost every center uses IMRT for um, cervical cancer, unfortunately. I'm not sure everybody is ready to use IMRT, especially for intact cervix, but I think for a post-op cervix, most people can do IMRT very well for cervix cancer. And do you have a sense internationally as to whether patients have access to IMRT? Yeah, and that's a great question. So Varian machines and both, both Varian and Electra are starting to make only VMAT machines. So cobalt you can't, but a lot of the new variant and Electa machines are only doing IMRT VMAT. So like in Rwanda, they got a brand new variant machine which will only do VMAT. So they cannot even do 3D conformal treatment plans. And, and as a follow-up to that, is there any specialized additional training that a radiation oncologist has to undergo to be able to provide this type of service? So key. It's not just the radiation oncologist that has to undergo training, but it's also the physicist as well as the therapist. And physics and radiation oncology is really important because it's so precise. If you don't contour or outline the area you want to treat correctly, you will miss the target. So where we used to do these big fields, and it was very hard to miss the target with intensity modulated radiation therapy, you can easily miss a target. So the radiation oncologist has to be very trained on anatomy, on outlining the anatomy, but then because it's so precise, the therapy delivery is has to be precise. So each plan has to be, um, has quality assurance prior to treatment, which the physicist has to do. 
And in fact, even at MD Anderson, one or two percent of our patients, our plans fail the first time, and we have to replan to make sure that we're giving the right dose. Well, that sounds that sounds uh, amazing and fascinating for for this to be a new option for for our patients. Um, now, going specifically to the treatment of our um, early stage patients, um, what do you see as the uh, criteria that currently are used for the indication of postoperative radiotherapy after a patient undergoes radical hysterectomy? So I think it's still the same. I think it's still deep invasion, lymphascular space invasion, um, nodes, positive margins, positive parametrium. So it's still the Sudless criteria and the Peters criteria. So that hasn't changed. But what has changed is, so we do know for at least the Sudless criteria that adding radiation therapy improves local control but does not improve overall survival. So there is actually a study presently ongoing at the NRG with the um, KGOG that is looking at weekly cisplatinum and radiation versus radiation therapy alone. Unfortunately, I think everybody's pretty much adopted the weekly cisplatinum with the radiation, so it's hard to accrue, but hopefully the study will finish in about a year or two to show us if that chemotherapy adds. But right now, I think a lot of people are already using the chemotherapy with the radiation therapy, even though that really isn't the standard of care at this present time. So do you think that uh, that trial has a, a likelihood of uh, completing? Uh, yeah, I think there's only like only about a, I think even less than a hundred. So we're hoping it closes within a year or two. And then the, the other trial that is open is, uh, um, so let's talk about the next, which is positive nodes and positive parametrium. So that's the Peters trial. And we do know from the Peters trial that there actually was an improvement in overall survival, adding chemotherapy to radiation therapy. But the key thing for that Peters trial was that it was concurrent plus adjuvant. And they actually showed with the update by Brad Monk that the adjuvant, if you got four courses or even three courses, you did better than just getting the two courses concurrent. So the question came up whether adjuvant chemotherapy is beneficial. So the other trial, again occurring very slow, which started in 07, is a trial that looks at concurrent chemotherapy and radiation versus concurrent chemotherapy, radiation, and adjuvant. That trial also has about 100 patients. Hopefully, we'll finish it within the next two years, but it will tell us if adjuvant chemotherapy makes a difference or not. But I think you need to know, though, it's really important to look at Brad Monk's update because what it does tell you is that tumor size is really important as well as a number of nodes. So the patients who had one or less, one node didn't do, did not benefit from concurrent chemo radiation. It's two or more nodes really that benefited from concurrent chemo and radiation. And I think that's going to be the problem with the study is that we're going to have a lot of lower risk patients. So we'll have to see if it shows any benefit or not. And one of the things that the the listeners always ask uh, or have feedback about is what you know what what do you do at your institution when you're giving concurrent chemotherapy? You're giving it on a weekly basis. Correct. Okay. So we do weekly cisplatinum. Again, it's remember it's important to remember that Peter's trial they actually use cisplatinum and five FU every three weeks. But the standard of care in the United States and pretty much everywhere else in the world is weekly cisplatinum right now, based on the randomized studies in intact cervix. And then um, in these patients, the patients who have had uh, surgery is now, and you mentioned previously that IMRT is becoming the standard of care. 
uh, and it's my understanding that, that that would be the case. In any patient that has a radical hysterectomy, then it is uh, it, IMRT the, the top choice. It, IMRT is the top choice, and now insurance are paying for it because of time C. So it's really interesting. So just um, I do want to st- step back because I think everybody needs to know this. I think because of IMRT, we are reducing both bowel and bladder toxicity. So the old idea that adding postoperative radiation therapy to surgery increased toxicity, so it was better to do either surgery or to do radiation therapy, may not be the same anymore. And for younger patients, maybe surgery followed by postoperative radiation therapy could be an option because the vaginal dose is less and they would have less vaginal toxicity. So I think in young patients nowadays, if you have a 4CM tumor or you're borderline, it may be better to go ahead and do the surgery, maybe transpose the ovaries, and follow with radiation therapy, and that would maybe reduce the vaginal toxicity, and you don't have increased bowel, and to- um, bowel or bladder toxicity because of IMRT, and now that you're doing sentinel nodes, you don't have any lymphedema. So, uh, you know, it's a win-win, especially for the younger patients. And actually, you mentioned something that that brought up a question with regards to the um, impact on ovarian function, and um, particularly with IMRT now, uh, do you think that this changes the the role of uh, ovarian transposition? Um, should it still be recommended? Uh, is this something that should be routinely discussed? Or now with IMRT, do we not need to do ovarian transposition? You still need to do ovarian transposition, um, transposition because it has to be moved out of our field. And I, I do think if it's done right in a, in hands that do it quite often, it is actually a good procedure, but you have to be very experienced in it and you have to move it out of our fields. There's a lot of places around the country and around the world that they actually do it automatically, even in locally advanced. Now, I don't know whether that's helpful in locally advanced, but in early, if you want to save the ovaries and you think there's a high um, probability that you're going to do post-operation therapy, move the ovaries. Now, if it's, you know, there's a debate about adenocarcinomas. I do think if you have a poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma, you should not. But for squamous, it, you should go ahead and move the ovaries if you can, especially if you think you're going to do radiation. And Anujah, you mentioned um, the topic of sentinel lymph node mapping. And of course, obviously, we know that uh, through the sentinel lymph node algorithms, if there is a bilateral detection, then uh, certainly this gives us a, a very representative um, in, impression of, of the lymph node status in, in the pelvis. Um, but one of the questions that comes up is that, um, particularly with sentinel lymph node mapping, uh, you may find this data after the surgery. And what is your thinking with regards to when to do extended field radiation in that setting? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Um, again, cervix is a little bit different than endometrium. So with cervix, if you have positive pelvic nodes, then you're going to get positive common iliac nodes and then periodics. Where endometrium, you could have positive periodic nodes without having positive pelvic nodes. But I do think if you have positive bilateral pelvic nodes for cervix cancer, definitely you need to do a scan. And most of these patients get a PET scan. But we do have data from your study, Dr. Ramirez, that showed that PET scans 
aren't as sensitive if you have positive pelvic nodes in the periodic. So you have to decide whether you're going to treat extended field or not. The advantage, again, of IMRT is if you do do extended field, you do have decreased toxicity now. In the old days, we had high toxicity with doing extended field. So we're more likely to t- treat extended field than we are not now. But PET scans are very reliable, except for patients who have positive pelvic nodes on PET scans. Then you have to debate whether you're going to treat the periodics or not. And if a patient happens to have um, positive um, pelvic lymph nodes, let's let's discuss the patient that has positive sentinel lymph nodes, but in the common iliacs, do you we in those patients then extend your field? Hundred percent. So the rule of thumb is, if you have positive pelvic nodes, you need to treat the common iliacs. If you have positive common iliacs, you need to treat the low periodics. But if you have positive periodics, then you need to treat the entire periodic chain. So that is. So if you have positive common iliacs, you have to at least go to the renal vessels. And just to remind us, when you speak about low periodics versus the full periodics, what 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 are you talking about with regards to yeah. your levels? So the levels. So positive common iliac, you need to go to top of L2. If you have positive periodic nodes, you need to really go to the top of T12, or 100% have to go above the renal hilum. Key is you want to go at least one vertebral body above the positive node. And this is the most common mistake that I see when I'm reviewing plans is that we'll see these huge, large, or high periodic nodes, and there's the level above it's not because they're going to fail above it. So you've got to at least go one vertebral body higher than your positive node. And in these sets of patients, do you change your chemotherapy regimen in any way if you're going to go to the full periodics? No, we still give weekly cisplatinum. You can give carbo, but um, we start with cisplatinum before you can give cisplatinum. Okay. So now let's change gears a little bit to locally advanced disease, uh, cervical cancer. Um, what do you see as some of the most uh, impacting changes over the last uh, five to 10 years? So again, what we talked about, image-guided brachytherapy is the key. So now everybody is getting image-guided brachytherapy. So we're doing CT or MRIs on all of our patients. We're looking at the we're, we're looking at where the tandem and ovoids are or where the tandem and ring is. We're looking at the sigmoid dose. We're looking at the rectal dose. We're looking at the bladder dose. But we're also looking at what the cervix gets. We're contouring. So we now have real true data on what doses can be delivered. So everybody's getting image-guided brachytherapy in the United States and Europe. Now, in other low-income countries, they're moving more to that, but they're still film-based. But image-guided brachytherapy has definitely reduced toxicity and improved local control. And there's large amount of data to show that. So that's the biggest change, I think, in the last 10 years. High dose rate, but that's old news now. But the biggest change now is image-guided brachytherapy. And in the United States, that's become pretty much standard of care. And then what do you see as today as as what you would call the the most uh, exciting studies in in locally advanced cervix cancer and radiation therapy? What what are some of the studies that you're looking for the the, the results? So key, Outback. Outback trial, which is completed about two years ago. Um, very interesting. So you have to know that. So the Outback trial was made for like 700 or 800, but they had to um, increase accrual to 1,000. It, it closed about a year or two, or two years ago. So what that is is concurrent chemoradiation versus concurrent chemoradiation followed by four courses of carboplatinum and taxol. So what Outback will tell us is if adjuvant radiation therapy improves 
overall survival and locally advanced. The other trial that's presently open and is actually really accruing well and will close within a year is the interlace trial. So what interlace is doing is looking at neoadjuvant neo chemotherapy followed by chemoradiation versus chemoradiation for locally advanced um, cervix cancers. And this trial is actually open in Mexico, it's going to be open in India, and it's open in Europe. And like I said, it should be closed within a year, so we'll have an idea about what neoadjuvant chemotherapy will do to locally advanced treatment. So those are the two big trials. The other trial, the TACA trial, is looking at um, weekly cisplatinum versus every three weeks cisplatinum. It also should be closing within a year. It's um, accruing in um, Korea, Thailand, in China, and, and Vietnam. So that actually will be a really interesting trial because if you can give chemo every three weeks, you actually reduce the toxicity of the patients in the two weeks that you're not giving chemo. So those are the three big trials in locally advanced that we are waiting for data. And what do you think is the buzz among radiation oncologists, particularly as it pertains to the Outback trial? Do you think that that will become our new standard, chemoradiation so, followed by additional chemotherapy? What is your sense? I so, <laughs> That's a good question. So my sense is that, unfortunately, we probably put very low-risk patients on it, and we may not see a big difference. And I think that's the same thing that with 0724, which is the post-op trial, because I think that's going to be the same problem. I do think adjuvant chemotherapy makes a big difference in high-risk but Outback did not allow positive periodic notes. So it's really a lower-risk patient group. They are now doing more trials. So right now, the new trial is a tri in the United States is the triapine trial, and that does, but that also does not include periodic nodes. We are looking at immunotherapy, and in fact, the new trial, phase one to phase two trial, is looking at immunotherapy with radiation therapy in patients with periodic positive nodes. But I think with Outback, unfortunately, we may have too low-risk patients to see a huge difference, and I think that's going to be the sad part about this trial. And I'll ask you the same question about the interlace trial and your, your thoughts on the neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Yeah, I, you know, so <laughs> we have data from the United States that shows that neoadjuvant chemotherapy probably isn't beneficial, but the Europeans have data that, internet, um, that neoadjuvant chemotherapy is. They do believe the way they're giving it may be beneficial. Again, it'll be an interesting trial. We'll have to see what it shows. Well, Anuja, it's been absolutely a pleasure speaking with you about this, and I wish we had more time. Uh, any closing uh, remarks you want to make? No, I think we're moving in the right directions in cervix cancer, um, and I know we've that there's another podcast talking about early, you know, the early trials like SHAPE and all of that, but we definitely are moving in a much better space in cervix cancer. We're curing more patients. Um, now we just need to actually eliminate the disease. Well, thank you very much. It's been absolutely a pleasure.